The Apostle Peter in his second letter is writing with the awareness that his time with the believers he is addressing is short. And so he encourages them to stand firm in the faith and to to press on in pursuit of godliness. For if you do these things, he writes, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So I will always remind you of these things even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Uh, I can't say how much longer I have to live in the tent of this body, but I do know that my departure from Annandale is fast approaching. And so I share... Peter's desire. During my last few months as your pastor, I want to remind you of things you already know so that you will be able always to remember them. I've entitled this sermon series Great Themes in Discipleship, but really it's simply a summary of the great themes of the gospel. And more than anything, I, I want to remind you of the good news The good news that this God who is frightfully holy, this God has purposed through His grace and His grace alone to send His Son Jesus Christ into the world to rescue us from our sin and to bring us into an eternal relationship with Himself. And so He calls everyone everywhere to turn to Him in repentance and faith. And and then uh, more than that, he, He calls us to to, to put our trust in Christ, and then He sends His Spirit to cause us to be born again, empowering us to live a new life, a new life with a new purpose and with a certain hope of a glorious eternal destiny. I want you always to remember these things. And so this morning, we continue this gospel theme by considering that new life to which we're called, a life of love and obedience, a life that is full of hope as we look to the coming day. So I want us to go back to that passage from Romans chapter 13. We begin there in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, where Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding. Now in the previous verse, he's just made the point regarding our obligations as citizens in this world to verse, in verse 7. We must be faithful to pay off any debts we may have. But now he expands that point By making one crucial exception. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Now I ask you, do you have any debts? I mean, if you're a typical American, I'm sure that you do. Uh, And I have to say, I hate debt. Uh, Susan and I use a credit card for convenience. We try to buy only what we can pay for at the end of the month. Uh, We have a civic responsibility to repay the debts, whatever they may be, but Paul says there is one debt we can never repay. It is the one mortgage we will never be able to burn. It is our perpetual debt of love. We can never say we have loved enough. We have a continuing debt to love one another, Uh, but we are indebted only because God has first loved us. 
We love, John writes, because God first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. God's gracious. He comes to us without conditions. There is nothing in us that can ever merit God's grace. We can never earn it. God's grace comes to us without conditions, but it does not come to us without obligation. And this debt of love is the ongoing obligation, a debt we owe that flows from a grateful heart for the gift of God's Son who brings us into this new relationship with the God who is love. And so in the gospel, you see, we're recipients of an eternal love. And that necessarily calls us to a life of love. Freely you've received, freely give, Jesus says. And as we heard Jesus say to Simon the Pharisee two weeks ago, those who have been forgiven much are the ones who will love much. And God has called us to direct our gratitude for his love first to those of the family of faith. He says uh, to love one another. This continuing debt to love one another. And there are whole hosts of, of passages in the New Testament that speak of this one anothering that we are to have. We are to serve one another in love, Galatians 5. We are to be devoted to one another. We're to honor one another above ourselves. We're to live in harmony with one another. We are to instruct one another. We are to teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. We are to speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We are to stop passing judgment on one another. We are to accept one another just as Christ accepted you. We are to be kind and compassionate to one another. We are to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. We are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We are to bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. We are to encourage one another and build each other up. We are to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. We are to offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. We are to greet one another with a holy kiss. And we are to love one another deeply from the heart. The one another's of the New Testament. And Paul says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. This is the ministry, the service that we owe to one another in the body of Christ, the church. Now Paul says here, especially, especially to those who belong to the family of believers, but certainly he did not mean exclusively. And our acts of love can't end within the church family. We're also to love our neighbor. Now you may ask, who is my neighbor? And we know that when Jesus was asked that question, he told the story of that good Samaritan who happened to meet a man in need along the road as he traveled down to Jericho. His neighbor was that needy person God had placed in his path. He helped him simply in view of their common humanity. The neighbor in the New Testament sense is not someone arbitrarily chosen by us. He is given to us by God. As G.K. Chesterton said, we make our friends, we make our enemies, but God makes our next door neighbor. And so we're called to love one another. We're called to love our neighbor. And there's a specificity to this kind of love. We're not to love humanity in general, but no human being in particular. Nor are we to, to love only through our tax money, going to government programs, and not with our own time and energy. We're to love that person that God brings across our path who has a need that we can somehow meet. And so every day we must ask ourselves, Lord, 
who is that neighbor that you're calling me to love today? And that debt of love toward other people is nothing less than the debt that we owe to God himself. For you see, loving our neighbor as ourselves is at the heart of God's demand upon us. For, Paul says, whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. He writes in verse 9 of our passage, the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, whatever other commandments there may be, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love is that to which all the commandments point. And Paul is simply echoing the words of the Lord Jesus here. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands, he said. And so all these prohibitions that Paul lists here against harming other people through adultery or murder or theft or coveting what belongs to them, all those commands point to the supreme command to love. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Love does naturally what the law seeks to legislate through specific commands. But love creates the kinds of relationships that the law seeks only to make possible. And that's why there will be no need for law in heaven. There, you don't need law when there is love. Love is the fulfillment of the law. But does that mean that we don't need law anymore? Is Paul here saying that we can throw away all the rules that God gives us to live by and hold on to just this one instead, love your neighbor as yourself? Well, some people think that. Didn't John Lennon and Paul McCartney sing, All You Need Is Love? And some suggest that love has its own built-in moral compass, which discerns by intuition what the loving thing to do is in each situation. But the problem with that is that it just naively ignores the fallenness of our humanity in this world. Well, you see, love as it is experienced in this world is not infallible. And so in this world, love and law need each other. In the words of one commentator, the law protects love from the subjectivism and self-deception to which the Christian is constantly exposed, not because he is unjust, but simply because he is human. Or as another put it, love needs law for its direction while law needs love for its inspiration. And you could say that every divine commandment is simply a way that love is to be protected and is to be expressed. I like the way that uh, Tom Wright puts it. He, he contends that rules serve as signposts and, and warning signs or even crash barriers on the highway. They're important to keep us on track if something goes wrong. But they're unnecessary for those who've learned to drive properly. And Paul, as a pastor, uses rules in his, his epistles to keep the readers from avoiding a crash. And that may also help us in uncharted territory. But, but Paul's greater concern is with the development of the virtues which inherently lead us down the right road. For you see, all the virtues, all those virtues that are ours by, by, by being joined to Christ in faith, all those virtues that we're to put on, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, 
they're all expressions of love. They're all ways in which love can be guarded and lived out. Even we as Christians who are no longer under the law of Moses, we're still subject to the law of Christ, a law which helps to give substance to this law of love. And so Jesus, in his great commission, which Pastor Tim will talk about more next week, is a great commission to make disciples among all nations. It includes that we are to teach people to obey all that Jesus commanded us. If you love me, you will obey my commands, Jesus says. So you see, love and obedience go hand in hand. Love is the fulfillment of the law. The love is summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And so you see, to love is our supreme activity as human beings. It is what God created us to do. It's what life is about in its most essence. Uh, The poet Robert Browning once said, he said, take away love and our earth is a tomb. Think about it. That's true. If you take away love, you take away the very presence of the life of God himself who is love. Love is supreme, Paul says in that great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Without it, everything we do Everything we think is worthy of praise. No, without love, it's a big nothing, a big zero in the sight of God. Love is supreme, for our God is love. And so we have here the the, the supreme challenge for the Christian. The supreme challenge for the church is to grow in our love. And I would say to grow in our love by growing in our grasp of the gospel. John writes in his first epistle, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. When you love your neighbor, you are loving the very image of God in that person. Love is from God. It is his greatest gift to us. Nothing else even comes close. And again, love comes to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Love is the supreme source of the gospel. The gospel flows out of the very heart of God who sent his son to redeem us. Love is the substance of the gospel as it is demonstrated in the son of God who gave up his life for us on a cross. Love is the power of the gospel. It melts our hard hearts. It sets us free from a slavery to self-centeredness as God sends his spirit, that spirit of love, into our very souls. And love is the goal of the gospel, that we may share in the life of God himself, that Trinitarian life of eternal love, and so share in the very image of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful thing love is. And I think now more than ever, it is central to our mission in the world. People need to see the difference the gospel makes in the lives of Christians. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, Jesus says. People don't care what you believe until they first believe that you care. And it is our love for one another and for our neighbors that will make the gospel attractive to the world. And I say, there's nothing more gratifying to me as a pastor 
than to see you in this church living together with love for one another. There's no clearer demonstration of the truth of the gospel and the power of the Spirit at work among us. So I urge you to set your eyes on the beauty of love. Well, let me turn back to Romans 13. Paul says, love your neighbor as yourself, for love is the fulfillment of the law. Then in verse 11, he writes, do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Now, Paul had uh, opened this section of his letter with a moral exhortation back in chapter 12, verse 1, with the words, therefore, in view of God's mercy. In other words, we're to live in response to what God in his love has already done for us. And so we're to look back in time at the cross of Christ, and there we see the most magnificent display of God's love for us we can ever imagine. God sending his son to die on our behalf. We look back in time. We see the empty tomb as that expression of the very power of God to overcome sin and death. We look back in time at the the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. This this spiritual work of God whereby he, He actually comes to indwell in us to change us from the inside. We look back and see God's love. This transforming grace of the gospel flows from that work of Christ that has already been accomplished in the past. But I want you to notice in this passage, at this point, Paul changes direction. Instead of finding our inspiration from the past, he calls us to look to the future. We're to understand the moment in which we live. And he says it's time for us to wake up from our slumber. The night is nearly over. In the resurrection of Jesus, the first rays of the dawning sun are just over the horizon. And he says to us, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, for this world is not going to be with us much longer. A far greater world, a more wonderful world, a glorious heavenly world, a world of love will soon be upon us. And when that world comes, our salvation will be complete. We will become like Christ himself in all his glory. We'll be rid of all the last remnants of sin. And we will reign in life and in love. And so Paul writes, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. We must understand the time in which we live. But you might say, but Paul, I mean... It's been over 1,900 years since you wrote those words. Uh, Are we to believe that you're wrong when you said the day is almost here? I think we have to appreciate the way in which Paul understood time. You see, the first Christians were convinced that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the last days had been ushered in. Jesus had inaugurated the end time. Nothing in all of human history Nothing that had happened or would happen would be more important than that event until God brought human history to its conclusion in the glorious return of Christ. The length of that period of time between Christ's first and second comings depend 
entirely upon God's gracious patience. But the end will always be pressing down, ready to be revealed. The event is certain, though the timing is uncertain, which should all the more stimulate our hope and arouse our wakefulness. We know it's coming. We ought not to be caught off guard. Now, I confess, with the passing of 1,900 years, it can become easier to let the imminence of that event escape from our imaginations. Uh, It's much easier to think of history just going on and on and on for hundreds of years, isn't it? But even if the coming of Christ does not grip us, surely our own deaths ought to for each one of us. The world will pass away to us at the moment we take our last breath. And I can assure you that day is drawing nearer to all of us every day. And when that happens, the war in Ukraine will no longer concern us. The protracted fight between Republicans and Democrats will no longer be of interest to us, nor will our cash balance in our bank accounts. We will awaken to a new day in glorious light, and suddenly everything will be different. And that, you see, is part of the understanding of the time. Living life with the end in view. In one way or another, the night is almost over, the day is almost here. Do you understand the time? Will you live your life now in the light of that glorious end? And Paul says, wake up. Don't be lulled to sleep. Don't don't live in some dull stupor with your face fixed on your phone all the time. No, the day is dawning. It's time to get up, he says. And in the Middle East at the time when Paul was writing, in an age governed by the sun and without the convenience of artificial light, only the lazy would stay in bed after the dawn, especially since the work had to get done before the heat of the noonday sun. And that sun was just about to come up. It's time to wake up, he says. There's no time for the sleep of spiritual laziness or indifference. The future day is bearing down upon us. It's almost time for you to enter into heaven, that world of love. So he's saying to us, be now what you will become then. Let your future destiny determine your present desires. So he says in verse 12, let us put aside the deeds of darkness And put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently, as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. No, we belong to the daytime. Our true home is that world of light where the holy love of God shines bright upon us. And so he says, let's live that way. And just think of the things that people in this world are engaged in. Paul talks about drunken orgies, sexual escapades of all sorts. Do you, do you expect to find those in the world to come? What about the petty disputes that so often surface among us? Even in the church, the dissension, the jealousy, the little ways we offend one another, we get offended by one another, the ways we take up sides, split up, fight and bicker and argue. Is, is any of that going to be a part of that glorious new world? That world of love? Of course not. So he says, put off all of that. That's not who you are. That's not what you will become. All that belongs to this world. 
And you're no longer to be conformed to this world. And so he says in verse 14, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's been called the summary of all of Paul's exhortations on the Christian life. This is what it's all about. Put on Christ, he says. In another place, he says, I have died with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live in faith in the Son of God who, who died for me and redeemed me. We're to put on Christ. And you see, in Paul's mind, you were once merely a child of Adam. Your identity was solely determined by identification with the fallenness of this world. You were under the condemnation of God. But now, he says, you've been joined to Christ. You're now a child of God. You're now identified with this new era of righteousness and life found in your relationship with Jesus. As Paul says to the Galatian Christians, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. This is who you are. Identified with Christ, joined with Christ, in union with Christ. By faith you've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at you, he sees the spotless garments of Jesus. And now we're to live out what is already true of us. To experience now what we will one day become. We're to live out our life in Christ. And so we're to consciously embrace Christ in such a way that his character is manifest in all that we say and all that we do. We're to put on Christ. Now, admittedly, that's a kind of odd expression, putting on Christ. But it actually didn't originate with Paul the Apostle. In one Greek writer before the time of Paul, we read of a reference to one actor putting on a character in a play. In other words, he, he played the part of that character in the play. And, and, and so in a sense, we're to play the part of Christ in our various roles in this life with the Scriptures providing us with a script. But what Paul says actually goes much deeper than that. For you see, we now have the Holy Spirit of God living within us. We're not just play-acting in life. No, uh, Paul says our love must be sincere without hypocrisy. We do not merely play the part of Christ. We're actually transformed from the inside so that our character becomes his character. We're actually being conformed to his image. He lives within us, Paul says. He expresses his own life through us. This is what the gospel does. And so we're no longer in Adam. We're in Christ. Our identity is is no longer determined by our old union with Adam and that old kingdom of sin and death. No, we belong to this new union. This union with Christ. We belong to this new kingdom of righteousness and life and love. We belong to that kingdom that is to come. That world, which is a world of love. So he says it doesn't make any sense for us to live according to that old realm of existence that will soon be passing away. Do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Make make no provision for that old way of life. Don't dwell on it. Don't plan for it. Don't dream about it. Don't dwell on it. It will soon be over. 
Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we do this? Well, it's a matter of the mind, a matter of the heart, and a matter of the will. First, Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And if we're to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, if we're to play our part well, we need to know the script. We must saturate our minds with God's truth. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Paul says. We must attend to the truth about him, that he is the Lord. He is the Son of God, the Son of Man, the second Adam, the head of a a new humanity. We must attend to the truth that he taught. The truth about the character of our God, our our Heavenly Father. The truth about the world in which we live. The truth about ourselves. We must saturate our minds with the the virtues and values of the kingdom that He brings. That the, the greatest among you shall be the servant of all. That the meek shall inherit the earth. That those who give shall receive. And that those who lose themselves for His sake will find themselves. We must apply our minds to his truth. Are you doing that? A lot of what we do in the church is about this. It's about getting God's truth into our heads so that it can begin to change our hearts. You you need to find ways to attend to God's truth. You must if you're to grow in love. And second, if we're to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, we must feed our hearts. Feed our hearts with the the beauty and the goodness and the joy of becoming like Him. You see, most of our actions flow not from our heads but from our hearts. Our hearts are what what attract us, where our desires come from. Now, I think our minds help to shape our hearts, but our hearts are really what motivate us to act. So he, he asks you this, when you indulge yourself in sinful pleasures... When you engage in petty squabbling, when you nurture old grudges, hold on to past offenses, are you proud of what you're doing? Do you feel good about it? Is it something you want other people to know about? Or aren't you ashamed? These are the deeds of darkness, deeds that you would rather keep secret. These deeds, they don't foster love. They prevent it. These things don't bring joy. They only produce guilt and sorrow. Now contrast that with becoming like Christ. Living in a joyful gratitude to God for the good things He gives us each day. Enjoying the reconciliation in relationships that comes in humble forgiveness and grace. Experiencing the peace of God even in the most stormy of circumstances. Can't you see it? There's a beauty, there's a goodness, there's a joy in that kind of life that can be found nowhere else. So let your hearts be drawn to it. Desire it deeply. Let it be a treasured prize worth working for in your life. So our heads, our hearts, and finally, if you would clothe yourself with Christ, you must set your will to do it by God's grace and power. You see, don't be deceived. Desiring to live this kind of life, desiring to be clothed with Christ, is not the same thing as actually doing it. We can understand with our minds what it means. We can appreciate with our hearts that it would be a good thing. 
But if we do not set our wills to pursue it, we'll be in exactly the same position than when we started. We must be willing to pray, yes, Lord, I want to become like Christ. By the power of your Spirit, change me. It involves an act of will, the will to act. And so it, it involves praying daily. Lord, how do you want me to respond to my husband, to my wife, to my brother, to my sister, to my neighbor, to my coworker, the other students in my classroom? Lord, who do you want me to forgive today? Lord, who would you have me show kindness to today? Lord, who do you want me to go out of my way to help? today? Are you willing to ask God to show you a particular area in your character that he wants to change? Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's envy. Maybe it's lust. Each of these may require a specific act of the will to exercise a direct assault on its tyranny over you. If it's pride, God may call you to to humble yourself in some specific way. Go admit to someone else that you are wrong. Humble yourself. Go clean a bathroom somewhere. If it's envy, go compliment someone on something about them you admire. If it's lust, put a screening device on your computer. Trash those trashy advertisements. Quit watching those sexually explicit movies. Commit commit yourself to engaging with others in the body of Christ who can encourage you in this pursuit of godliness. So I ask, what's it going to be for you? Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not think about, do not make provision on how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. You've been joined to Christ. We have a home with Him in heaven. And that heavenly world, that world of love, it's, it's on its way. It's just around the corner. Do you hope to live there? Do you hope to enjoy its beauties? To experience the wonders of its glory? then be now what you will become. Prepare yourself to live in that world even now. Experience a taste of that world to come in the present world as you experience the life of the risen Christ. For Jesus Christ, He is the supreme citizen of that glorious world to come. He is the ultimate expression, the absolute embodiment of this love that we've been talking about. So put on Christ. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. That light that comes to us in Jesus Christ. May that light of God shine upon us. For that's where true love is to be found. And may we set our minds and our hearts on this most supreme reality, the reality of love that is a most excellent way. That's our challenge, the challenge to love. I close with the words of Jonathan Edwards that I think are so appropriate. If your heart is full of love, it will find vent. You will find or make ways to express your love in deeds. When a fountain abounds in water, it will send forth streams. Consider that as a principle of love is the main principle in the heart of a real Christian. So the labor of love 
is the main business of the Christian life. Let's pray. Lord, encourage our hearts this morning. Encourage our hearts first with the love that we have sung about, read about, prayed about, this love that comes to us in the gospel of Jesus. This love of God poured out for us, an eternal love that draws us into eternal relationship with the God of love who becomes our heavenly Father through Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. Oh, Lord, just fill our hearts with that love so that we can become a conduit of that love in the lives of others. Oh, Lord, stir up this desire within us. Train our heads, move our hearts so that our hands and feet may respond in action that shows forth your great love. Lord, what a beautiful thing it is and how this world needs to see it. May we display it, this grace and truth that comes through Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.